Father, I thank you. Um, Lord, I thank you for your word. God, and I, I thank you for the time, the times, Father, that you have given us over the past several months, Father, to, to hear you speak to us through the book of James. Father, it has been timely for us, and it has been needed. God, you tell us in James that we are to, to count it pure joy, all joy, when we are surrounded by various trials. Father, as a church, Lord, we are surrounded. As individuals, Father, we are surrounded by life's various trials. And Father, we know that it is for your glory and for our good that we are given these trials. So God, I pray, Father, that you would continue to sustain us through life's trials, that you would use these trials, Lord, to glorify yourself as you draw us to your Son. Lord, we need to hear from you this morning. We ask, Father, that you would speak to us. In Christ's name, amen. You would turn with me um, in your Bibles to James chapter 1. James chapter 1, specifically today, we're going to be looking at verse 18. However, I think it's necessary and appropriate um, to, to begin reading in um, verse 2. Verses 2 through 18 really kind of compose one section of James, and I would just consider that or call that section trials and temptations. So today, verse 18, we're going to kind of conclude with, with this section um, in James. Starting in verse 2. Consider it all joy, my my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. And let endurance have its perfect result, so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. But if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives to all generously and without reproach, and it will be given to him but he must ask in faith without any doubting. For the one who doubts is like the surf of the sea, driven and tossed by the wind. For that man ought not to expect that he will receive anything from the Lord. Being a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. But the brother of humble circumstances is to glory in his high position. And the rich man is to glory in his humiliation, because like flowering grass he will pass away. For the sun rises with a scorching wind and withers the grass, and its flower falls off and the beauty of its appearance is destroyed. So too the rich man in the midst of his pursuits will fade away. Blessed is a man who perseveres under trial, for once he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life which the Lord has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted by evil. And he himself does not tempt anyone. But each one is tempted 
when he is carried away and enticed by his own lust. Then when lust has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And when sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brethren. Every good thing given and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shifting shadow. Verse 18. In the exercise of his will, he brought us forth by the word of truth so that we would be a kind of first fruits among his creatures. I recently had a conversation with my in-laws when they were visiting about the gospel and the importance of proclaiming the gospel. And I was able to share with them that, that on, on several fronts, it's important to proclaim the gospel um, for non-believers, right? In Romans 1.16, Paul says, what, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the, what, the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. Right? The gospel is God's ordained means by which he saves men. It's important to proclaim the gospel to non-believers, to the lost. I think sometimes, as I, as I shared with my in-laws, as believers, we kind of think, well, I got the gospel, right, back, back then, back when I was saved, and so, so we kind of move on from here. You know, it's not necessary maybe to, to proclaim the gospel um, to believers, to proclaim it to one another, to proclaim it to yourself. But you see, it is important. It's important as a believer to hear the gospel. It's important as a believer to proclaim the gospel to other believers. And it's important for multiple reasons. It's important because it, it convicts us. As a believer, if, if you have unrepentant sin in your life, it's again hearing the gospel, being reminded of who you were and what Christ did for you. Right, The gospel that God uses to bring conviction and repentance uh, on the believer, for the believer. Okay? It's also important um, for us because it's the gospel. It's being reminded of what God did for us. It's being reminded of the fact that God dealt with the greatest need of our life. It's being reminded of that that God uses to encourage us and to strengthen us. So the thing is this. We need to be proclaiming the gospel to everyone, to non-believers, and to believers, to ourselves, to one another. We need to hear it. You might wonder, so what does this have to do with verse 18? We see James is reminding, he's reminding the believers that he was writing to. He, he's reminding us now. He's telling us now. God, through James, is telling us now, right, that we need to be reminded of the gospel, that we need to hear the gospel. Verse 18, he says, in, this, in the exercise of his will, he brought us forth by the word of truth so that, would, so that we would be a kind of first fruits among his creatures. The summary of verse 18 is this. God saved us. And he saved us through the gospel for himself. Now, this is just a summary, and we're going to spend some time this morning um, unpacking it. But now the timing of this verse in James is is appropriate and it's necessary. Now, it naturally flows from verses 13 through 17. If you recall last time, 
when we were we were in James 13 through 17, right? We looked at temptation, right? And the fact that that we were the source of temptation, right? Temptation leading to sin, we were the source of that sin, right? That we were responsible. Not God, who not merely allows us to go through trials, right? But in fact, God wills us or wills trials upon us. He does it for his glory, our good, right? But even when we're tempted through those trials, right? God is not to blame. We are. That's what James was was telling us last time, 13 through 17. And at the tail end of that, 16 through 17, he says, do not be deceived, my beloved brethren. Deceived about what? Deceived into thinking that somehow God is responsible for your temptation, your sin, right? Do not be deceived, my beloved brethren. Every good thing given and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shifting shadow, right? Because God is what? He's faithful, right? There is no variation. He's reliable. He's trustworthy, okay? And so this verse, verse 18, naturally flows from that. Not only does God not cause temptation, thus leading to your sin, right? Not only is everything that God gives us good, right? Because he is faithful. But remember, but remember that what? That God saved you. And that he saved you through the gospel for himself. And so 18 naturally flows from that. And yet it's a perfect fit at the end, at the end of this, this section, 2 through 18, where we've been considering the various trials of life. I can't think of anything more encouraging and more necessary for the believer when, when I, when you, and we are in the midst of these trials, in the midst of, of illness, in the midst of maybe troubles with work and, and, and maybe marital problems, and maybe, maybe the loss of loved ones, okay? maybe financial difficulties. I can't think of anything more encouraging when we are surrounded by these trials than being reminded of the gospel, being reminded of the fact that the greatest need of my life has been dealt with. It doesn't get any worse than this here now. It's only better. And so the reminder of this at the end of of this section, it's appropriate, it's necessary, and it's needed. I want to give you a a rough kind of three-point outline of this verse that we're going to look at. And the first point is this, that we're saved by God. That we're saved by God. Second point is that we're saved through the gospel. The third point is that we're saved for God. So we're saved by God, we're saved through the gospel, and we're saved for God. In 18, he starts and he says again, in the exercise of his will, he brought us forth. Now, I summarized it and I said, God saved us, right? And that's just that. It's just the summary, but there's so much more that we're going to unpack, right? Understand this, that, that God not merely desired for men 
for people to be saved. What this says here, in the exercise of his will, he brought us forth, right? But that God actively brought about our salvation. He didn't passively desire it. He didn't passively make it possible, but he actively brought it to pass. To be brought forth is to begat or to give birth to. And a man can't give birth to himself, can he? No. We have no role in that whatsoever. The cause, the active portion behind that is is God. And we yet have just a passive role. And that passive role is to respond to his begetting, to respond to the birth that he gave us, to the life that he gave us. Now this verse deals directly with the sovereignty of God and the salvation of man. You see, God is sovereign in salvation. God is completely sovereign in salvation. He accomplishes the salvation of men, of people, of me, of you, if you are a believer. He accomplishes it entirely on his own. There's a theological word that we can attach to that, monergism. Not God plus anything, but completely, entirely, totally God. Salvation is not, is not a result of God's work and man's choice. God plus man. No. There's a theological term we can associate with that as well, though, or that line of thinking that it is God plus man. Synergism. See, in verse chapter, I'm sorry, in, in chapter 1, verse 18, James, right? He what? He leaves no room for God plus man. No room. In the exercise of his free will, he what? Begat you, if you are a believer. He, and his will, he did this. Did it. Brought it to pass. Accomplished it. Now I want to say that this, however, does not, this is important, it does not negate man's responsibility to repent and believe. You see, apart from repentance and apart from faith, there is no salvation. But I want you to understand this morning that repentance and faith, repentance and faith is the response of a changed heart. Now, by changed heart, initially, I don't mean a saved heart. I mean a regenerated heart. Regenerated from what? Regenerated from from death to life. You see, the unregenerated person 
spiritually dead. Unregenerated person is an enemy of God, incapable of any spiritual good, and unable to respond to the gospel. Turn with me, if you will, to Ephesians, Ephesians chapter 2. Start in verse 1. And you were dead. You were dead in your trespasses and sin. He's talking to believers and he's referring to what they were before they were saved. They were, they were dead. You were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them, we too all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath. Even as the rest. But God, anytime you hear a but God statement in scripture, just just take special note of that. But God, being rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were what? Dead in our transgressions. Did what? Made us alive. With Christ. By grace you have been saved. Dead man can't make himself alive, can he? Dead men can't give life to themselves. Babies can't for themselves. God did what? Made us alive. God what? Begat us. In the exercise of what? His free will. He what? brought us forth. Understand that regeneration, this this bringing us to life, so to speak, bringing us from spiritual death in this place where we are incapable of responding to the gospel, right? Pre-regeneration, spiritual death, right? Regeneration is an enabling of us now to respond to the gospel. It's not salvation, but it's an enabling of the dead man to now respond to the gospel. So regeneration precedes salvation. And again, it is the regenerated heart that responds to God and responds to the gospel through repentance and faith. Regeneration is a complete and total work of God. If you would turn with me to John chapter 3. You are probably familiar with this, right? Jesus and Nicodemus. John chapter 3. And we're going to read verses 1, 1 through 9. Now, there was a man of the Pharisees 
named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you have come from God as a teacher, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered, said to him, Truly, truly, now this is important. Listen up, what Jesus is saying here, emphasizing it. Listen to what I'm about to tell you. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Now, to be born again means to be born from above. Born again is not simply synonymous with salvation. Like, I was saved, and I was saved, and at the time I was saved, at the exact same time that I'm said to have been born again, okay? Being born again, what Jesus is, is, is explaining to Nicodemus here, being born again, born from above, actually precedes salvation. Now, I can't put a time frame on that. I'm not, it precedes it by 10 minutes. No, it could be a week. No, I'm that, no. It precedes, that's all you need to know, is being born again precedes salvation. In fact, what Jesus is referring to here by being born from above, being regenerated. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is regenerated, Unless one is regenerated, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Because if you are not regenerated, you are dead in your what trespasses and sins. You are incapable of responding to the gospel, incapable of responding to God, incapable of any spiritual good, knowledge or understanding. So unless you are regenerated, you cannot see the kingdom of God. And Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? He cannot enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born, can he? Now, the funny thing here is is Nicodemus is actually putting the emphasis on man. Man cannot enter. Man can't do this. That's what he's saying, right? How can a man do this to himself or for himself, right? But what did Jesus just say before? Unless you are born from above. It's not your work. You have no part in it. And Jesus answered him and he said, he said, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. And that which is born of the spirit, spirit. Do not be amazed that I said to you, you must be born again. Listen, this is important. The wind blows where it wishes. And you hear the sound of it, but do not know where it comes from and where it is going. So is everyone who is born of the Spirit. It's not up to you. It's not up to you, he says. You have no part in it whatsoever. It's up to what? It's up to the Spirit. It's up to God. It's 
his work, not your work. Now, Nicodemus's response, I think, is important here in, in, in verse 9. I think it's often overlooked. His response was this. Nicodemus said to him, said to Jesus, said, how can these things be? Nicodemus' response to, to Christ. I mean, Christ just explained this to him, right? Nicodemus, this great Pharisee, right? Surely was smart enough to get it, right? I can assure you, he was probably a smarter man than I will ever be. But after Jesus explained this to Nicodemus, that regeneration, right? Being born again is a complete act, a total work of God, not of man, you have no part in it. Nicodemus was like, huh? I mean, that was his response, right? Christ just explained this profound spiritual truth to this great Pharisee, and his response was, huh? I don't, I don't, I don't get it. His response demonstrates the fact that man is born in a state of spiritual death whereby he is incapable of understanding spiritual truth and responding to the gospel apart from God's regenerating work. Why didn't Nicodemus get it? Why didn't he get it? Because, at least at this point, we don't know for sure with Nicodemus, but at this point, he hadn't been regenerated. So Christ just explains this to him. His response is, huh, why didn't he get it? And he didn't get it because he what? He, in fact, hadn't at that point been born from above. He hadn't been regenerated. He was still incapable of understanding spiritual truth, responding to the gospel. I'm going to look at some more scriptures that demonstrate this fact that salvation is not dependent upon man. It's not dependent upon man's choice, right? Man's decision, his will, or his work, but on God. John 1, we'll just flip back, 9 through 13. There was the true light which, coming into the world, enlightens every man. He was in the world. And the world was made through him. He's talking about Jesus here. And the world did not know him. He came to his own, and those who were his own did not receive him. He's talking about Jews here, okay? Did not receive him. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God. Even to those who believe in his name, who were born, now, now pay attention, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. So our new birth, our from, from regeneration to salvation, complete, total work of God, not God plus man's will, but God's will. Romans 8. 
verse 26 through 30. In the same way, the Spirit also helps our weakness. For we do not know how to pray as we should, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches the hearts knows what the mind of the Spirit is, because he intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that God causes, God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew. Now, now know this, foreknew doesn't mean that God just simply knew something about you. That God knew that maybe at one point in your life you were going to make this choice or that choice. Or you were going to respond in this way or that way. No, 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 no. Foreknew. God knew you personally, intimately. He knew you. You were his. You could substitute the word for no with for loved. That God for loved you. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined, which means to what? To, to determine in advance, right? He also predestined to what? He predestined to become. Predestined to become conformed to the image of his son. He didn't predestine you to door A or to door B. He didn't predestine you to a choice, it says here. It says that he actually determined in advance that you would become conformed to the image of Jesus. So that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. And these whom he predestined, he also called. And these whom he called, he also justified. And these whom he justified, he also glorified. He, 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 right? Nowhere in there do we see he plus, he plus me, he plus you. But he, 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 he did this. And, and, and I'm going to read the last verse there again. And these whom he predestined, it's past tense, isn't it? He also justified, past tense. And these whom he justified, he also glorified. Past tense. There's significance in that because it was determined. It was determined before the foundations of the world were ever laid. It was determined by God that he would save you. Romans 9, 10 through 24. And not only this, but there was Rebecca also. When she had conceived twins by one, our father Isaac, for though the twins were not yet born and had not done anything good or bad, so that God's purpose, according to his choice, his choice would stand, not because of works, but because of him, God, who calls, it was said to her, the older will serve the younger. Just as it is written, Jacob I 
loved, but Esau I hated. What shall we say then? There is no injustice with God, is there? May it never be. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. And I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then, pay attention. So then, it does not depend on the man who wills. Or the man who runs. But on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose, I raised you up to demonstrate my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed throughout the whole earth. So then he, God, has mercy on whom he desires and he hardens whom he desires. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who resists his will? On the contrary, who are you, O man, who answers back to God? The thing that molded will not say to the molder, why did you make me like this, will it? Or does not the potter have a right over the clay to make from the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for common use? What if God, although willing to demonstrate his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much patience, vessels of wrath prepared for destruction. And he did so to make known the riches of his glory upon vessels of mercy, which he prepared beforehand for glory. Even us, whom he also called, not from among Jews only, but also from among Gentiles. the exercise of his will, he brought us forth. He didn't simply desire our salvation, but he accomplished it. And he accomplished every aspect of it. So James says here in the first part, in the first point, God saved you. You're saved by God. And we are saved through the gospel. In the exercise of his will, he brought us forth by the word of truth. The word of truth. God's word. The gospel. Romans 1.16. Call what Paul says. I am not ashamed of the gospel, right? I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the, what, power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first, and also to the Greek. The gospel is the power of God for salvation. 1 Corinthians, if you would turn with me to 1 Corinthians, one eighteen through 25. Paul kind of expands on here what he had said in Romans or addresses the same issue. He says, For the word of the cross, the gospel, is foolishness to those who are perishing, 
But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the cleverness of the clever I will set aside. Where's the wise man? Where's the scribe? Where's the debater of the sage? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not come to know God. But God was well pleased through the foolishness of the message, the gospel. God was well pleased, sorry, God was well pleased through the preaching of the gospel, right, to what? Save those who believe. For indeed, Jews ask for signs and Greeks search for wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified. To Jews a stumbling block, to Gentiles foolishness. But to those who are the called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God, because the foolishness of God, the gospel, the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God stronger than men. Recall, if you will, the Great Commission. We don't have to turn there. Matthew chapter 18, right? And he says what? Jesus said what to his disciples? He said, go ye therefore. And what? Make disciples, right? How, how are they going to make disciples? What was the commission to do? It was, it was to baptize them in the name of the, the, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, yes. But it was to what? It was to proclaim the gospel. It was to preach the gospel. How are you going to make disciples? And how are you going to, to follow through with that ordinance of baptism apart from preaching the gospel? Also, if you will, and don't, don't turn there. I'm not going to read it. It would take probably the rest of the time. But if you'll recall, Acts chapter 10, really 10 through the mid part of 11, okay, uh, Cornelius, right, was a Caesarean um, uh, centurion, right? Uh, God sent an angel to him, and they said to Cornelius, said, Cornelius, send for a man in Joppa named Simon, who's also called Peter. He has a message for you. So, so uh, uh, Cornelius sends some men, and they go get, they, they find Peter, right? They, they, they get Peter, and they bring him back to Cornelius. And Cornelius, they, they tell him, God, an angel that God appeared and said that we were to send for you. There's a message that you have to tell us now. Now, we know that Cornelius was a God-fearing man, wasn't a believer, wasn't saved, right? But God sends this angel to tell Cornelius to go do this, right? And so he does, and Peter comes, and Peter delivers this message to Cornelius, and the message was what? It's the gospel, He preaches the gospel to Cornelius and the Bible tells us that Cornelius and his whole household was saved. And then then in chapter 11, actually, Peter, he goes to Jerusalem and he just kind of recounts that story and kind of summarizes it, okay? So you see, James here isn't merely reminding the church of the God-ordained means by which man must be saved. And we just looked at these verses that address that, right? I mean, clearly, the God-ordained means is the preaching of the gospel by, by men, I mean, especially when you consider that, that Cornelius and Peter, I mean, the angel, Randy and I talked about this the other day, the angel could have proclaimed the gospel to, to, to Cornelius, okay? God could have used some other supernatural divine revelation means. I mean, you know, the apostle Paul, right? That was a little bit different deal with Christ on the road to Damascus, but actually Paul heard the gospel preached by Stephen, okay? So, so even then, God used man to proclaim the gospel, okay? Not to say that God couldn't use other means, but that's not the norm. Right, that would be the extraordinary, but that's not 
what we see here. That's not what we're commanded to, right? It's to preach the gospel, okay? So James isn't merely reminding the church of this God-ordained means, all right, by which man must be saved, right? James isn't simply saying God saved us by the preaching and hearing of the word. I mean, he is saying that, okay, in this verse, right? In the exercise of his will, he brought us forth by the word of truth, right? I mean, it is a reminder of the God-ordained means. But what James wanted his, his, his recipients of this letter, right? Especially through this trial, this temptation section. What God wants us to be reminded of is the gospel itself. The content of the gospel. Remember the gospel itself. Not that that's just what God used to save you, but remember the gospel itself. And the gospel is this. I was guilty, me, Nathan. I was guilty, before God. If you are a believer, you were guilty before God. If you are not a believer, you are guilty before God. I was guilty of breaking his law as revealed in his word, as written on my heart. I was guilty of breaking that law, his law, which in and of itself, his law is not the standard. You see, God's law is a reflection of the standard. The standard's God. Okay. And I was guilty of breaking his law. If not in deed, then in thought. Guilty of breaking every one of his commandments. Bible says what? There's no one righteous. No, not one. Paul, Paul actually quotes the Psalms in Romans 10 when he says that. There's no one righteous. Right? Jesus says what? There's no one good but God. Right? We know that all have sinned, according to, again, there in Romans 3. Right? All have sinned, fall short of the glory of God. You see, because God is good. God is just. God is a righteous judge. He must punish law breakers, of which I was one, am one, now not guilty before God. Nonetheless, God must punish law breakers. The punishment for this is what? It's death. For the wages of sin is death. The punishment of your violation, my violation, punishment of the laws that I broke, God's perfect law, which is a reflection of him, it's death. So fair, fair is death. Fair is death. Fair for people, all people. It's death. It's physical death. It's spiritual death. It's an eternity in hell, separated from God with no chance of, of, of redemption. That's fair. And this is bad news. I mean, that's the bad part. That's, that's the first part in the sense of the gospel. It's, that's bad news. I was in trouble. If you are a believer, you were in trouble. If you are not a believer, you are in trouble. What does the gospel mean? It's good news, right? Good news. You see, there is good news. That's the bad news. There is good news. The good news is this, Romans 5, 8, but God. Remember this, but God's love, the but God's. But 
God demonstrates his own love towards us and that we were yet sinners. Christ died for us. You see, God sent Jesus, his son, right, to earth to pay the punishment, the penalty for my sin. Jesus, the God-man, lived a perfect life. This life that we've been commanded to live, that we cannot live, lived this perfect life. The life I couldn't. He was brutally executed on a cross, suffering the death that I deserve but, but yet the death that I could never die because, because the, the suffering that Christ endured on the cross, the death he died is unlike any other suffering or any other death that any person could ever suffer. You see, because he was, he was perfect, because he was perfect, you see, his death satisfied the righteous requirements of a just judge. But you see, the death that the unbeliever dies will never satisfy it. Will never satisfy the righteous requirements of God. So Jesus died, really the death that I deserved, but the death that I could never die so that I could live. Jesus was buried. Three days later, he what? He rose from the dead rose from the dead, conquering death, conquering sin. Now he sits at the right hand of the Father in heaven. You see, if this is the gospel. And if you are a believer, this should thrill your soul. Christ met the greatest need of your life. He took the punishment, the wrath of God deserved for you, bore it upon himself, and now you live, and you will live forever. It should thrill your soul. As much today as it did the day you were born, actually, I believe as we mature as Christians, it should thrill our souls more and more. And if you are not a believer, then the call for you is to repent and believe and be saved. Be saved. May today be the day of your salvation. You see, this is the gospel. This is what James, this is what God, through James, wanted us to remember. That's what he was saying here, not just the means. And it was important that we looked at the means before we looked at the gospel itself. But he wanted us, God wants us to be reminded of the content of the gospel. Be reminded of who you were, what You were sin. And now who you are, what you are in Christ. When God looks upon us as believers, does he see, does he see Nate the guilty? No. Does he see Nate? No, he doesn't see Nate. You know what he sees? He sees his son. He sees Christ and he sees the righteousness of his son in my place. This is what, what James wanted us to be. 
reminded of here, what God wanted us to be reminded of here when we're surrounded by these trials, these temptations. Think of these things. Think on this gospel. So we're saved by God. We're saved through the gospel. The final point is we're saved for God. In the exercise of his will, he brought us forth by the word of truth so that so that we would be a kind of first fruits among his creatures. So that answers a question. Why? Why did he do this? So that. So that we would be a kind of first fruits among his creatures. This past summer, I was a healthy addiction. Not really an addiction, but I was addicted to Stratford peaches. I mean, I, I don't think that there is a better peach than a Stratford peach. I'm just my opinion. And the best peaches I've ever had have come from the Tyler peach farm. I mean, that's just my opinion. I think it's facts. No, um, but, but this summer we were, our household was completely just addicted to good, good Stratford peaches from the Tyler peach farm. And I would have these conversations with Randy like like multiple times throughout the summer, you know, because I'd get a batch and then I'd get another batch and you know, I'd be waiting for another batch. And I'd have these conversations. I'd call Randy and I'd be like, so, so where are the peaches? At? You know what I mean? Like, what's, what's going on? You know, and he'd be like, all right, all right, here's the deal. It'd be like a Friday. He's like, here's the deal. My dad thinks that Tuesday's the day. They're going to be ripe Tuesday, the new, the new, the new variety, right? The, the Hail, Hail Haven or Loring or whatever they are. Tuesday's the day they're picking them first ripe. So you want to get there Tuesday and get you some good peaches, right? Because that's when they're at their peak. That's when they are the best. Randy was talking about the first fruits, right? The first fruits of the harvest that were the farmers that are typically the farmer's prize. The first fruits, the best. So, so that we would be a kind of first fruits among his creatures. See, we are God's first fruits creation. The prize, the prize fruit, the choice fruit. Now, the point here is this. It's not, before I say what it is, I'll tell you what it's not. We're not his first fruits because there's there's intrinsic value or worth in us and was something good about me that made God save me. And so I'm his first fruit. No, I'm such a worm as I, right? As, as we were singing earlier, okay? The emphasis here is not anything on us because there's nothing about us that's worthy of being considered a first fruit. The emphasis is on God, that we are his first fruits, that we are his fruits. Again, it's not a boast in us, but it's a boast in God and what he's done in us, what he's done through us. So here's the why. God saved us right, through the gospel for himself. He saved us for his glory. The fact that we are 
his. The fact that he saved us right, is for his glory. Why did Jesus why did Jesus come to earth? I know I know what the, the, the canned answer is, right? Jesus came what? Matthew one twenty one to save his people from their sins, right? I'm going to say yes, but. This is a yes, but here. That's not the primary reason that Jesus came to earth. I want you to understand that. This is important. The primary reason that Jesus came to earth was not, was not to save his people from their sins. Secondary, yeah, not primary. John 12. Twenty-seven and twenty-eight. Now my soul has become troubled. What shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose, for this purpose, I came to this hour, Father. Glorify your name. Glorify your name. Then a voice came out of heaven. I have glorified it and will glorify it again. You see, Jesus came. He came for the glory of God. He came to glorify God and it just so glorifies God to save people. God saved you not because you were worth saving. God saved me, not because I was worth saving, because you weren't, because I'm not. But God saved us. If you are a believer, God saved you because somehow in the mystery of God, it glorified him more, glorifies him more to save you than to let you perish. And he would be just and he would be fair to let you perish. But yet it glorifies him more to save some. often find that myself asking that question. I think we've all been to that place. Why did, why did he save me? Why would God save me? Why would God save me and not save someone else? Again, he did it for his glory. Ephesians 1, 3 through 14. There's a lot of emphasis on God in this passage. There's none on man. Let's let's just be mindful of that as we read it. We're going to read a lot of he's and him's. Okay. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Christ. Just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before him. In love, He predestined us to adoption. Predetermined that we would be adopted. Predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ. To himself, according to the kind invention of his will, intention of his will. To the praise of the glory of his grace. Why did he do any of that? Did it for his glory. Which he freely bestowed on us in the beloved. 
In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished on us. In all wisdom and insight, he made known to us the mystery of his will, according to his kind intention, which he purposed in him, with a view to an administration suitable to the fullness of the times, that is, the summing up of all things in Christ, things in the heavens, and things on the earth in him. In him, sorry, in him also we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the, his purpose, who works all things after the counsel of his will, to the end that we who were the first to hope in Christ would be to the praise of his glory. To the praise of his glory. In him, you also, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed, you were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is given as a pledge of our inheritance with a view to the redemption of God's own possession. Again, to the praise of what? To the praise of his glory. Everything that God does, everything that God does, he does for his glory and God will be glorified. God will be glorified. He says, I will not, and and Isaiah, I believe he says, I will not share my glory with another. You know what that means? That means nobody's going to get it but him and he's going to get it. Beloved, I can't think of anything more important, more necessary, more needed, more encouraging than this. When we are surrounded, at a time like this, when I feel that as a church, we are surrounded by various trials in life. We are. We've got people struggling with illness, financial hardship, we, we have, have suffered loss, family members, best friends in the last several months. Can't think of anything more needed, more necessary, more encouraging than being reminded of the fact God saved us. It's hard. Dealing with these things is hard. But God dealt with the greatest need of my life. Dealt with the greatest need of your life. So, so even amidst these trials and this heartache, and that's okay, we can rejoice. We can rejoice in him and in what he has done, what he's done in us, what he's done through us. We can rejoice in the fact that he is being glorified. Father, thank you for the gospel. Lord, apart from the gospel, we would still be lost. God, it wasn't worth saving, Lord, those of us you have saved and those you have yet to save, Father. We're not worthy. We saved, we're not worthy of your grace. And yet, Father, for your glory, for our good. You have chosen to save us, to pour your grace upon us. We could have never understood it. 
We could have never responded to the gospel apart from your regenerating work in our lives. So, Father, I praise you. I thank you for the work that you've done. God, I pray that we would never forget the gospel. Lord, that we would never just lightly look over it and think that it's, it's nothing more than just a means to an end. But, Father, that we would be reminded constantly, Lord, of the content of the gospel. That we were worthless, nothing, dead. And you made us alive in Christ because of Christ. Lord, allow us. Father, speak through us the gospel. Lord, we need to be proclaiming it to one another. God, forgive me when I fail. Lord, we need to be proclaiming it to those around us. Father, the people that are unbelievers. Father, we need to be, be proclaiming the gospel to them when they, when they look at our lives and they say, man, you're going through it right now. How can you have, have joy? How can you have peace? Lord, let us preach the gospel. God, you, you are worthy, Lord, of all praise and all honor and all glory. And we ask, Father, that you would continue, Father, to glorify yourself through us. It's in Christ's name, for his sake, that we ask these things this morning. Amen.